All right. Good morning, guys. You guys going to have a seat? What's up? It's good to see you all. Um, man, this is it's an exciting day. This is something that uh, we've been dreaming about and praying about for a while. Uh, just the opportunity to um, expand to another location and uh, hopefully be able to serve a, another portion of people uh, that are city members but that still have the, the vision and passion to reach college students. So uh, thank you guys for being patient with us this morning, even as we've had um, some difficulties this morning. Uh, the good news is, hey, we're here together and we get to uh, worship the Lord. And it's actually kind of fitting because uh, even though we are in a, another location, we're still one church and we're still going to be going through all the same stuff together and everything. So I'm going to be preaching out of 1 Corinthians this morning, same as what we've been uh, doing on campus. And appropriately, uh, the title of that series is Messy Church. And uh, if anyone was involved in setup this morning, you got to see how church can be messy sometimes. Um, but the, the reason that we've actually titled this series in 1 Corinthians Messy Church is because uh, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, Christians that were in a church that he planted in the Greek city of Corinth back in the first century, so almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, things were going great. There were a lot of good things that were happening in the church, but at the same time, there was a lot of stuff that was messed up, and they had a lot of questions, and they were doing a lot of things the wrong way. And so Paul needed to uh, give some further instruction to them on how they should live this Christian life. Uh, how they should follow Jesus faithfully. And so uh, even though this was written about 2,000 years ago, we found it to be super helpful and super practical for a lot of the questions that we still face today. And so I've had fun uh, going through this with you. We're actually nearing towards the end of it. Um, but I know that it's been really good for me even uh, to just take some time to dive a little bit deeper into a lot of the issues that Paul instructs this church in. Now, uh, I, I want to ask kind of before I get into our topic for today, how many of you guys were at a Thanksgiving celebration that had a lot of children there this week? Yeah? Okay, decent number. My family uh, is kind of on this cool streak right now where uh, there's been a kid born in our family every year for the past nine years. Like, like one kid exactly per year. And, there's, and then my cousin is pregnant, so there'll be another one born next year. So we'll have a full decade run of one kid and exactly one kid born every year. So at this Thanksgiving that I was at, uh, there were nine kids running around in one house, all of which were eight years old or younger. Um, so you can imagine it was a little bit chaotic. It was fun. Uh, but if you've been at a celebration like that, you know that sometimes there are going to be kids running around uh, and screaming and laughing, and they're having a great time, but you don't know exactly what's going on. You can't even necessarily understand what they're saying or what they're talking about. You know they're enjoying themselves, but it's kind of confusing if you were to try to figure out what exactly they're doing. Uh, and, and that made me think a little bit, actually, of... Uh, one of the things Paul was trying to guard against in the church in Corinth, I, I hadn't been to a Corinthian worship service in the first century, but uh, given from what, what Paul is speaking about here, it seems like he has a little bit of concern that their worship services might have mirrored what my family Thanksgiving looked like this past Thursday, uh, where there was a lot of noise, a lot of confusion, people having a great time, uh, but not everybody necessarily knew what was going on. And so one of the things that we're going to be looking at this morning, really the main thing, is, is how is it that we should conduct ourselves in the worship service in a way that is uh, that builds each other up and is glorifying to God. So that's what we're going to be getting into this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you have your Bible with it with you, you can open it up uh, to that passage. 
Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay, because we will have the text on the screen right in front of you, but I will be referencing the text a lot, so I always think it's preferable if you have that so you can And magnificent and powerful you are, that you still love us and you still care for us, uh, that you still desire to communicate with us. God, we thank you for the actions from our lives, that you would help us to focus on the message this morning. God, especially your, uh, your word as I read it, I pray that it would sink into our hearts and that you would teach us today, God. I pray that you would use me as your vessel this morning um, just to deliver a message that is going to build up the church body. Uh, we love you, Father. We want to draw close to you, so be with us. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 25, so it's a lot of text, um, but... It's interesting, so bear with me here. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues for, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Okay, let's stop there for now. Um, So in this passage, Paul is continuing to instruct the Corinthians about how they should conduct themselves in their worship service. If you've been with us uh, over the course of the semester, we've hit on this a little bit already. A few weeks ago, I I preached about um, head coverings and this idea of uh, what was culturally appropriate to distinguish between men and women in the worship service. Uh, We talked, he also hit on Lord's Supper. I didn't have time to preach on that, but that was the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, which I refer to every now and then. Uh, Kyle talked about this different spiritual gifts that were being exercised and how we're all one body, but we have different gifts that he gives us. And so we need to learn how to use those in a way that honors each other. We actually skipped over 1 Corinthians 13. Don't worry, we're going to come back to it. We're going to hit that next week. And uh, that's partially because I just think that's really a linchpin chapter of this whole letter where Paul is explaining what love is and how we can love each other. And really, when it comes down to why the Corinthian church was so messy, it comes down to the fact that they didn't know how to love each other well. So since we knew a lot of people were going to be gone for Thanksgiving, we wanted to make sure that we hit on that chapter once everybody got back. But even there, before resuming this discussion on how to conduct themselves in the worship service, he ends with this idea of giving a little bit more teaching on spiritual gifts and specifically speaking about speaking in tongues and prophesying. And that will kind of conclude his section of speaking about how we should conduct ourselves in the worship service. So after reading this passage, you probably have several questions. And uh, before we can talk really any more about it, I think that there are a couple of terms that we have to define. Which, first off, what, what does it mean to prophesy? What does it mean to speak in a tongue? What does it mean to interpret tongues? These are all things that he's referring to here. And there's actually differences within Christianity of what people think uh, Paul is speaking about in this passage. Um, I, I will say here... Because there's differences within Christianity, I'm not going to have time to be able to necessarily go through every single uh, idea that's out there about what these mean. I'm going to give you what I think to be the most persuasive, and I may reference other arguments every now and then. Uh, But if you were with me a couple weeks ago when I preached on head coverings, I talked about this idea of open-handed issues and closed-handed issues, which open-handed, closed-hand issues would be issues that you hold onto with a closed hand. They're absolutely essential to our faith. Uh, Things like salvation by grace through faith, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, uh, that God is triune. These are the kind of things that are central to the Christian faith. They're very, very clear in scripture. Uh, Whether or not you believe them distinguishes whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. And then there are open-handed issues, which doesn't mean that they're insignificant, but they're issues that there's some disagreement on within Christianity, that two people could both be Christians but have different views on them because the Scripture doesn't speak quite as clearly in these areas. Uh, So baptism is kind of a classic example of that. It's a very important issue. It's an issue that you have to take a stand on. There's differences within the church on how we think that we should should go about baptism, who should be baptized and when they should be baptized. Um, Issues about different roles within the church. Uh, Should women be allowed to be pastors? Various things like that. There's disagreement within Christianity Christianity on these issues. Now, once again, that doesn't mean that they're insignificant. Um, They they are important, and we need to do the absolute best job that we can in trying to figure out what Scripture has to say on these issues, because we have to make a decision, right? Like, if you're going to baptize, you have to decide how you're going to do it. 
if you're going to structure your church, if you're going to have a church that has any sort of structure at all, you're going to have to choose how you structure that and how you select elders. So there are things that you can't just abstain from making a choice on. Yet at the same time, I think that when we make these choices, we have to do the best we can with the evidence that the scripture gives us and also exercise humility in that. Now, to be honest with you, I much prefer preaching on closed-handed issues than open-handed issues, <laughs> okay? I, I prefer preaching on the things that are of the, the highest primary significance, and I prefer preaching on things that the scripture is really, really clear about. But as your pastor, I also really, really value uh, teaching you guys the scripture and all of the scripture. And, and so one of my greatest hopes for us as a church is that we would be a biblically literate church, people that come to love the word of God, that come to know and understand the word of God. And so with that, when we come across some of these passages where uh, it might not be necessarily as clear or, or unanimous within Christianity of what it's talking about, I still think it's very, very important for us to engage with these. And so that's why we're just preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians and we're addressing every single issue as it comes up. Um, yeah, so in the summer, I felt like it was important for our church to go through the book of 1 Corinthians because it covers so many issues that are relevant to the church today. So before we continue on, I just want to say these two important things for us to keep in mind. First, what I'm going to be talking about today, it's not of primary significance, but it is significant. Uh, it's important because we want to honor and love God in obeying him. And in obeying him, we're going to find our greatest joy and fulfillment. If God is truly a good God, then that means every command that he gives us is for our good. So we're going to be much better off figuring out what he has to say about how we should conduct ourselves and, and obey that, rather than us trying to just do whatever it is that we want to do. Second, there are competing views within Christianity that differ from the conclusions that I've come to, okay? And, and that, that phrase, within Christianity, is important. Remember, these are not going to be closed-handed, primary-type issues that I'm addressing this morning. Um, I can't possibly cover every competing uh, viewpoint in that time frame. I do want you to know there are some other ones out there. Uh, I've studied this, though, and I'm going to present to you what I think is most. Look at this issue of tongues. What is it that Paul is talking about when he references what's going on in Corinth and these people speaking in tongues? The Greek word here is glossa, and it refers to the physical tongue, but it is also a broad term that can really just mean language. And uh, some of your translations might even say language in the place where mine says tongues. Uh, what I believe this is referring to in this passage is praying or praising in some language that is not naturally understood by the speaker. All right, I believe that he's referring to what a lot of people might call like ecstatic utterances. Uh, this is kind of a well-documented thing within Christianity. If you've been around the church for any uh, decent amount of time, whether or not you've seen it or experienced it, you've probably at least heard of this idea of people um, kind of speaking some sort of language that almost kind of sounds like babbling or gibberish. Nobody really knows what necessarily it is, uh, but the person claims that they're speaking something that the Lord is, is, is telling them to speak. I think that that's the most likely explanation for what was actually going on in Corinth here. And the reason is because all throughout the chapter, Paul refers to these tongues as being something that are not understood. Right? He says there in, in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. One of the big things that he's getting at is that when you speak in tongues, nobody understands you or knows what's going on, unless there's somebody there to interpret. So I don't think that this is referring to what happened at Pentecost, where there were actually different languages that were being spoken so people could understand there. Instead, it seems that whatever Paul is referring to was something that kind of just sounded like babbling, and people didn't really know exactly what was being said. Now, 
Um, there are a couple errors that I think are very significant that I've seen people make with regard to tongues. And the, the first error is believing that every Christian must speak in tongues, or even that every Christian should speak in tongues. Uh, I know people that have basically used tongues as a uh, benchmark for whether or not you're saved. You know, I know people that have essentially been kicked out of churches, uh, left churches because they, they were treated as lesser than because they had never spoken in tongues. Uh, this is a horrible error and abuse of this gift. And Paul makes that very, very clear. Kyle preached on 1 Corinthians 12 last week. I, I really have no idea how people even fall into this error of thinking that everyone has to speak in tongues uh, because it doesn't get any more clear than what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll read verses 4 through 11 with a little bit cut out just for the sake of time. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, and to another effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Paul's getting at this whole thing in 1 Corinthians 12 where it's like, hey, you guys are one body that has a lot of different members. Not every person is going to manifest the gifts of the Spirit in the same way. So how foolish would it be for us to take something like the gift of tongues and say, oh, well, if you're a Christian, certainly you'll speak in tongues. This is your benchmark of whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. Paul's making it clear as day here that this is not the benchmark of whether or not a person has the Holy Spirit. Even in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, he says more straightforward. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? He, he takes this to be self-evident. You guys realize that just because you're Christian, it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to speak in tongues. It doesn't mean that you're automatically going to heal. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to interpret tongues. There are a lot of different gifts that the Spirit distributes in different ways for different reasons. Now, despite this uh, clear teaching, some Christians still amazingly uh, get way off track with this. And I know even of some churches where um, people are so desperate to want to speak in tongues because it's been taught to them that this is the benchmark of being a Christian, that they essentially try to produce it themselves. Um, I, I remember hearing about one church that basically had classes where they would like try to teach you how to um, manipulate yourself to sound like you're, you're speaking in tongues. I think this is getting way off base uh, with what we're supposed to be doing here. <clears throat> up, to my, up to this point in my life, I've never spoken in tongues. I know other people, other Christians that I respect that do. I believe that it's still something that does happen and that does have value, uh, but it's not personally something that I've experienced, and I don't think it's an expectation that every Christian should have to experience that. And it doesn't even mean it's bad to desire. Paul even said, hey, I wish you'd all do it. But it's not bad to desire it. But you also don't have to expect that this is absolutely something that is going to happen in my life and something is wrong with me if the Spirit doesn't give me this gift. And so that really leads me into the other big error, which is some people think that no Christian should speak in tongues. Um, some disregard all speaking in tongues as complete nonsense, and they think that it's always a situation where somebody is faking it, if, if this is a situation that, that comes about. And uh, this primarily stems from a viewpoint called cessationism. <clears throat> 
which believes that miraculous gifts such as healing or speaking in tongues uh, have ceased, and that they, they do not take place anymore, that they were only necessary when the apostles were around. And then now that we have the scripture that was all written and it's been canonized, there's certainly no need for, for the spiritual gifts to manifest themselves in this miraculous way anymore because their purpose was to uh, basically validate the apostles and the message that they would give, which is, of course, what turned into the, our, our scripture that we have now in the New Testament. Um, while I understand the, the historical argument that they're trying to make, I understand the logic of it, uh, the problem is there's no biblical basis for this argument really at all. Um, so this might be something that a person could try to drum up, but it's certainly not standing on any sort of scriptural authority uh, to say that there is no, no such thing as miraculous sign gifts anymore. As a matter of fact, we have to do something with the fact that Paul himself said that he spoke in tongues all the time. Now, if you say, hey, it was just for the apostles, I get it. That argument doesn't hold much weight. But still, in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, he said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So Paul certainly didn't think that speaking in tongues was a bad thing. Um, and later in the passage, even, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, not to forbid speaking in tongues. He says, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. And so if you're a cessationist, then you have to do something with the fact that he didn't put a time frame on that. He didn't, he didn't say, do not forbid to speak in tongues until all the apostles die out and then forbid them to speak in tongues. No, he just says, don't, don't forbid it. And, and so I think that we have to do something with the fact that scripturally, I think there's a much stronger argument to say that things like this would still happen. We, we certainly have no biblical reason to believe that they don't. Um, so rather than shunning tongues right off of the bat and saying, hey, people are just crazy, they're overly emotional, whatever, um, I think that instead we need to learn and understand how to actually exercise tongues in a responsible way, which is a lot of what Paul's getting at in this passage. Um, now, just even before I move on to prophecy as well, I do think it's worth briefly mentioning um, that some people think tongues refers to speaking in other languages. I already referenced that as to what happened at Pentecost. So an example would be like if I started speaking Chinese all of a sudden. I've never learned Chinese. I don't speak Chinese. But for whatever reason, say a Chinese person was around, I start speaking Chinese and they hear the gospel in that language. Um, there's documentation of that happening at Pentecost. There's a chance that that's what, what Paul would be getting at here. But I, I don't think that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 just because he keeps drawing on the nature of Tongues is something that people don't understand. And as a matter of fact, the function of what happened at Pentecost was the exact opposite of the picture that Paul is painting here. What happened at Pentecost actually produced clarity. Whereas Paul is saying, hey, tongues actually aren't the best thing to happen in a worship gathering because they don't create clarity. All right, so that, that gives us an understanding of tongues. Now I want to move on to prophecy because these are the two things they kind of is weighing back and forth against each other. He's saying, hey, tongues, uh, they're, they're great. They're, I like them. Don't forbid them. They're good for you personally, but they don't really edify the church. There is something that does edify and build up the church, and that's what he labels as prophecy. So what, is it, what does prophecy mean here? Uh, theologian Wayne Grudem uh, defines the spiritual gift of prophecy as telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now, 
There are different views within Christianity of what exactly is being spoken about here with prophecy as well. Uh, I, I think that the prophecy that we're learning about here in 1 Corinthians 14 is a little bit different from the Old Testament prophecy that we got, which actually ended up becoming the words of Scripture. And I'll sh- tell you why. I don't have time... <clears throat> Time to get into the whole argument for this. Uh, if you're interested in this topic, Wayne Grudem actually wrote an entire book on this. It's called The Gift of Prophecy in First Corinthians. I haven't read this book. Uh, I've read a shorter version of his argument in his systematic theology. But the basic premise is that uh, Old Testament prophets in the New Testament are apostles. So there is a similar office. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophets were the ones that ended up writing down what we now have as our Old Testament scripture. The apostles... And their closest associates are the ones that ended up writing down what we now have as our New Testament scripture. Um, Grudem argues that by the time uh, of Jesus, the word prophet had really become diluted um, down to just meaning somebody that essentially uh, expressed, uh, had a formal function of declaring, proclaiming, or making something known. And so that would maybe make sense for why he would use this term apostle for people that were functioning as prophets rather than just using the term prophet because of what it had come to mean in the time that he was writing. So uh, when the New Testament speaks of someone exercising the gift of prophecy, it does speak of someone that's sharing something that they believe to be a prompting of the Lord. It still communicates this idea of, hey, the Lord is trying to communicate a message and he's using a person to do that. That was what a prophet did in the Old Testament. Sometimes it would just, sometimes it would be telling the future. Sometimes it would be just drawing their attention back to things that God has already said. In many ways, the prophecy is still the same. But the difference is that I wouldn't accord the same weight to somebody who's claiming to prophesy in the New Testament times is what I would under the Old Testament prophets, mainly because we don't have apostles anymore. Um, And I get this because there are several times within the New Testament that Christians are told to test prophecy. Uh, It suggests that there's some ability that there may be error that's involved with this. Um, and even within the church, I mean, presumably Christians that are doing this, we're supposed to test whether or not what they're saying is good. For, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21 says this, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And so I think that Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians, he's helping them realize, hey, the spirit does work through people in a way that they're going to prophesy. Um, don't despise them. Don't just automatically say, no, there's no way that the Lord could be speaking through this person. But examine everything carefully. So test what they're saying, right? We have scripture that we can test prophecy against. If this person is saying something that is, is flatly untrue or, or contradicts scripture, then okay, we, we've tested it and we've seen that this is something that's false. Test it, but hold fast to that which is good. So, so we have to have some ability to be able to say, okay, here's what this person is saying. I'm going to match this up against scripture. I'm going to hold on to what is good. Now, maybe the person is saying something that relates to saying, hey, this is going to happen in the future. We see this happen sometimes uh, in the book of Acts. There was a guy that prophesied that there was going to be a famine. Um, that doesn't contradict scripture. It's also not really confirmed in scripture. He's telling you something that's just going to happen in the future. So how would you go about testing that? Well, we don't really get a huge amount of information on it, but I think that the first test is obviously, does it contradict scripture, yes or no? If it doesn't, okay, then what I would do with that is say, hey, there's a chance that maybe this is from the Lord. 
I'm going to pray. Is there actually going to be a famine within the next year? Does the Lord start confirming this within other people in the church? And I'd say, okay, well, you know, if there's a chance that this is true, maybe I'll start living my life in a way that's that's in accordance with this. Uh, but I'm still not going to give it the same level of weight that I am going to give to Scripture, which I know for sure is actually the reliable Word of God. Um, so with that being said, I think that we need to have caution in both giving and accepting prophecy. Um, even w- with us r- realizing, okay, like I, the Holy Spirit may speak through me. He may want to be able to deliver some sort of a message to the congregation. I'm going to be very, very careful about whether I say like, hey, thus says the Lord. I mean, in Old Testament times, if a prophet did that and what they said didn't come true, the, the, that person was supposed to be put to death. Um, so I think that we need to be very careful when we say, hey, the Lord is telling me this. The Lord said this, if we can't be sure that he already said that in Scripture. Uh, I think that a, a, a more responsible way to go about this would be to say, hey, I believe the Lord is, is leading me to say this. I think there's a chance that maybe God wants to communicate this to you. Who knows? Maybe that came from your own thoughts. Maybe it didn't. Um, but I don't think that we can rule out the idea that God still wants to communicate with people through the Holy Spirit in this way. And... Um, at the same time, somebody says something to me that way, I'm going to weigh it. Uh, I'm not going to let it be something that I build my life around, uh, but there's a chance that the Lord is communicating a very valuable message to me through that person. So in summary, I believe that tongues is uh, referring to an indiscernible language uh, that a person is moved by the Holy Spirit to speak, and that prophecy is a spontaneous message given to the congregation uh, that is given to that person by the Holy Spirit. So now that we've identified what those terms mean, we have to figure out, okay, why is Paul talking about these two things? Um, What does he really want the Corinthian church to come away with understanding and how they should actually exercise these gifts? And I think verses 4 and 5 help really summarize the main argument of what we've looked at so far. It says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So we see here that the big thing Paul wants the Corinthians to get when they come together is to realize that when when you guys gather, your job is to, to edify each other. So if a person is over here speaking in tongues, if there's nobody there to interpret, it's not really an appropriate thing to do in the gathered worship service. It's not necessarily that tongues are bad or evil or the person's faking it or anything like that. But when we come together, the things that we do need to be good not only for us, but also for the building up of others. So, so tongues really don't have a place in the public worship service unless they're interpreted. So if a person was to speak in tongues and, you, and the Lord either gives an interpretation to that person or to somebody else, then they have an appropriate spot in the worship service. Uh, because the Lord is able to edify. That word edify just means build up. He's able to build up and teach other people through what was said there. If there's, some, if there's a bunch of different people that start speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation for it, then that's, that's just something that should be done on, by yourself at, at home. Okay, And it is something that you have control over, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, whereas prophecy, he says, this is, prophecy is greater. Why? Because prophecy is spoken in a language that we all understand. It's a word that I'm able to give that's able to actually build up other people in the church. 
And so the big idea that Paul is getting at here is, man, when you guys come together as the church, you need to be thinking about how you can edify each other. And you need to be practicing the things that are going to build up the other people around you. And this really, I think, has huge relevance for us today because most people, I would say, in our culture end up coming to church really just kind of looking for, hey, what can I get out of it? What kind of experience can I have? It's all about me. It's all about you and the individual experience that you have with the Lord. But when we start to learn about what the worship gathering is supposed to look like, that's not the picture that we get. Yes, your interaction with the Lord is significant, but Paul is helping us realize, man, when you come to the worship gathering, you need to be coming with a mindset where you're thinking about how you can edify others. And that's why you're not going to be speaking in tongues over in the corner by yourself. If you're going to speak, you're going to be speaking in prophecy because you need to, to care about building up other people. And so we need to move from having this mentality of church is all about me and what I can get out of it to, man, when I come to the gathering, how can I bless other people there? How can I build up other people that are there? The other added value that prophecy has over tongues is if there's non-believers that are in the service. If somebody walks in and we were all just making a bunch of noises and speaking gibberish, and they don't know the Lord, they're going to think we're crazy, right? Like, that's, that's what Paul talks about here. It's like, man, they're going to think that you're mad. But if a non-believer walks in, and we're able to prophesy to that person and say, hey, I believe the Lord has this word to say to you, and that speaks directly into the situation that's going on in that person's life, then just like Paul said, they're going to say, man, like, the Lord is certainly among you. That's something that demonstrates his power. Saying a bunch of gibberish that nobody can understand, while that may be the Spirit moving you in that way, that, that doesn't really demonstrate the Lord's power to that person. And so that's the other added advantage of why, in the public setting, prophecy is greater than tongues. <clears throat> now, I want to read the rest of chapter 14 here as we move to a conclusion, because Paul is going to help take this principle that we've learned and help us apply it. So let's see what he has to say here in verse 26 through the end of the chapter. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or three at the uh, two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in the church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. All right, there are a couple points of application and principles uh, that we have here, and then I want to make sure that I don't just leave you hanging with the thing that he said about women there, because I know it's confusing. 
All right, so the first thing that, that I want to draw out here is that everything in the worship service should be done for edification. I've already talked about this, uh, but I love verse 26. When you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Church is really about we more than it is about me. And so when you come to church, man, you should be thinking, how can I serve people? How can I edify people? How can I speak to somebody today in a way that can encourage them? Uh, come to church looking for a way that you can serve others, looking for a way that you can do something to build other people up rather than just coming to try and figure out what you can consume. Number two, speaking in tongues is allowed, but is only appropriate with interpretation. <clears throat> Verse 39, Paul said, do not forbid to speak in tongues. Verse 27 uh, and 28, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or three. Uh, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn, and the one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So this goes back to edification. Tongues only build others up if there's an interpreter there. So if you're a person that wants to be speaking in tongues, uh, if, if you don't have the interpretation or if nobody else has the interpretation, then it's not an appropriate thing to be doing in the worship service. However, if there is interpretation, then it's perfectly appropriate. Number three, the service should be orderly and not chaotic. All right. In verses 32 and 33, Paul said, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And what I think Paul is getting at here is helping people realize, man, you have the ability to control whether or not you just start blurting out in a tongue or whether or not you stand up and immediately just decide that you're going to start prophesying right now. Uh, the, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And, and so even this idea of like God is not a God of confusion but of peace. So sometimes you'll see people just saying, oh, I can't control myself. And they get up and they start babbling and running around and those kind of things. That's not the spirit. Because that, that, that person is behaving in a way that they, they say they just can't control themselves. Well, frankly, that contradicts what's being said here about the fact that the, their spirit is subject to them. God's not looking for our service to become some sort of a madhouse or a zoo or some sort of chaotic thing. And so there should be order in our worship service because... If you do have a tongue that the Lord is giving you to speak in, or you do have a prophecy, then you can deliver it in an orderly manner. All right? And I will even say, like, man, as I was saying, this has been good for me to go back and study through this because I want our church to become more and more biblical in the way that we worship. And so I know that right now there isn't much opportunity for people that may believe that they have a, a prophecy to speak. Um, so if that's the case, then, man, it, it, you believe the Lord wants you to share something, then I encourage you, please, like, come speak to me. And uh, we'll see if there's an opportunity that we can make for you to be able to share. And then the fourth thing I want us to talk about is that prophecy, prophecy should be evaluated for truthfulness. Verse 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So don't just swallow somebody's words uncritically because they say, oh, the Lord told me. And so it's kind of the trump card, right? Like if somebody says, oh, God said this, it's like there's literally like nothing that you can really do to argue against that, right? Well, Paul is saying don't just, just because somebody says, hey, the Lord gave me this word, that doesn't automatically mean that it's from the Lord. Like we have a responsibility to test that. And I already talked a little bit about how we can go through that process. Now, the last thing I want to speak on is the confusion about women speaking in the church, right? I find it interesting that right after 
in, in verse 33. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the church of the saints. And then right after that, he gets into two really confusing verses. They um, say, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So the, the reason I think this is confusing is, one, because it, it rubs against uh, the message of the Bible that we talked about a couple weeks ago where we see men and women are both created in the image of God. They both have equal value. Yes, they're different and distinct and they have different roles, uh, but they both have equal value. So it's kind of this weird idea of like, why is it that women would not be allowed to speak in the church? So it kind of rubs against us that way. But what makes it more confusing is in chapter 11, Paul seems to be fine with women praying and prophesying. If, if you go back and listen to the head covering sermon that I gave, or even look at 1 Corinthians 11, 5, it says, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying <clears throat> disgraces her head. And he, so really within the context of the argument, he seems to be suggesting that a woman can pray or prophesy as long as she has her head covered. I even talked about why I think that was a cultural thing with the head coverings. But with that being said, it's like, well, wait a second. Praying and prophesying are both verbal activities. How is it that a woman is allowed to speak so long as it's under these conditions? And then at the same time here, just a couple of chapters later, he says that they're not allowed to speak. What do we, what do we make of that? And uh, what I'd have to say is this. Like I said, there's a lot of different uh, possible explanations for what could be going on here. The, the two most persuasive ones I've found will be the ones I share with you. Uh, the first proposal is that the women in Corinth were disrupting the service by asking constant questions. Um, and this, this is a reasonable idea because it, women were not highly educated in that time. They didn't have the same access to education as the men did. And so now being brought into these worship services, which they were previously excluded from in, in Judaic worship, for example, then they would have had probably a lot of questions about some of what was going on. So there's a chance that, hey, they were disrupting it right in the context of where Paul is talking about this idea of the worship service should be orderly. Uh, he's trying to do something to, to stop this from becoming a disorderly, chaotic mess. Seems reasonable to me to some degree. Uh, my only question is why would Paul single out women specifically? Like why not just say ask questions at home, like, why does he have to single out women as that? Like, I'm sure there were uneducated men as well that probably would have had questions. So the word choice seems a little bit strange to me. Um, not saying that that's an impossible explanation. It just, uh, I see some problems with it. The uh, other possible explanation, which I probably find a little bit more persuasive, is that uh, the prohibition against women speaking is really a prohibition of them giving the final authoritative evaluation of whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord. Um, so just shortly before this, he was talking about how uh, you're supposed to test the prophets. And uh, ultimately, I think that this responsibility would fall to the elders within the church. It doesn't mean that they're the only ones that are going to be making this, this decision or having any input in this decision, but ultimately in deciding as a church, are we going to trust whether or not this prophecy is from the Lord? It would, it would follow that that, would, that responsibility would fall to the elders of the church, the people that are responsible for the theological oversight. And so with that, it would make sense that, okay, maybe he's prohibiting women here because women are not supposed to be elders within the church. Uh, theologian Craig Blomberg said this, 
An authoritative evaluation of prophecy, however, while requiring input from the whole congregation, would ultimately have been the responsibility of the church leadership, what Paul elsewhere calls elders or overseers, who, at least in the first century, seem to have been exclusively male. And I think that this does go back to, this is a whole other sermon that I could preach. I wrote a paper on this. If you want to read it, I can email it to you later if you want me to. Um, but this would go into a whole different argument of, okay, why is it that only males are called to be elders or overseers within the church? Um, once again, I do want to reiterate, I don't think that it's any sort of an inferiority thing. I don't think that the Lord is in any way uh, saying that women are less than men, no more so than we would say that Jesus is less than the Father. Um, Jesus was subordinate to the Father, su submitted to the Father, had a different role than the Father in the, in the process of salvation, but they were both completely God, right? And they, they were both completely vital in the process of salvation. We, we worship both father and son. And so in the same way that we see that relationship, I think that there's um, some parallels, not perfect parallel, I'm not saying it's a perfect analogy, uh, but some parallels that we can see in the way that both male and female are distinct and different, yet equal in value. And I talked a lot about this. If you want to hear more about that, you can listen to my sermon that I gave on head coverings a couple weeks ago, or I would be happy to talk with you more about this issue. Um, like I said, there are differences within Christianity, even how this is understood. I'm kind of in, in the middle to some degree. Uh, there, there are some people that are far more complementarian than I am. There are some people that are, which is the idea that... Um, they would have an extremely hardline stance of saying women can't speak in the church at all. Uh, there are some people that are far more egalitarian than I am where they would say, hey, there's no difference whatsoever between men and women, what they can be doing. Um, as I've said with you many times, my goal is always... I want to try to give the fairest and most reasonable reading of the scripture that I can, and I want that to dictate what I believe and how I live, rather than what I want and what's easy for me, okay? Uh, the easiest thing for me would just be to be completely egalitarian. Like, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that would be the easiest thing for me. Um, but I'm trying to be as honest as I can with the scriptures. And once again, we have to go back to this idea of if God is a good God, then what he's commanded is good. And so is there a chance that maybe uh, what our culture is teaching us right now, this idea that men and women are exactly the same, that they have no differences, that they should do all of the exact same things, that maybe that's actually a path to less abundant life than a, a, a more biblical understanding of the different distinctions between male and female and learning how to celebrate the different ways that God has made us and caused us to work together to jointly reflect his image. Okay, um, But man, I, I believe that, that God is good. As I was saying, I like preaching on primary issues more than secondary issues. I get tossed up in knots. You can ask Cass about this. It's not fun for me when I have to um, prepare passages that I think are, are difficult or ambiguous in some ways or that have um, places like this that, that rub against maybe even some of our uh, sensibilities or even against um, other places that we've seen in Scripture. Um, the, the good news is there are some things that we can be very, very sure about. And uh, one of those things that I just want to, as we get ready to enter into this next time of worship, uh, is I just want to bring our mind back to, we've been talking about order in the worship service. Let's remember the one who we are worshiping. Um, let's remember the reason why we're here together worshiping. And the cool thing is, like, we're here in this room united as people that are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And man, like what a beautiful and awesome thing that is. And is church messy? Yeah, it's messy. We're trying to figure out what to do about tongues and prophecy and gender roles and all these various kind of things. And it's cool. And the good news is we love each other and God gives us the ability to forgive each other and converse with each other and and and, and work together to try and find out how to follow him faithfully. So yeah, it's a messy process, but it's a beautiful process. Uh, but the cool and awesome thing is that our salvation is not based on us being able to figure everything out perfectly. Our salvation is based upon the fact that we worship a perfect Savior who lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sins. And every wrong thing that you've done, that you deserve punishment for, that you've been separated from God for, he took that on the cross when he died. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And when you have faith in him, that perfect life that he lived is transferred to you and all the punishment that you deserve for your sins is transferred to him. And the cool thing is, too, it didn't just end at the cross. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking about the resurrection. And uh, the, the good news is, man, after when Jesus was crucified, not only did he bear the weight and the curse of our sin, but three days later, he rose from the dead. And with that, man, he declared, I have defeated the curse of sin. I have defeated death. And even though we know that our physical bodies are passing away, we can look forward to one day where we are going to rise and live eternally with him. And man, that is the God that we praise. And ultimately, that is why we are the church. It's because we have come together and understand that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and the worship band can come back up here. Um, God, you are awesome. And I love you so much. I thank you um, that you are good. I thank you that you save. And um, God, this past week, I know our whole country is, is taking time to stop and reflect about the ways that we can give thanks. And um, there's nothing greater that we can give thanks for than the fact that you have brought us back into relationship with you. So, Lord, we pray that you would hear our praise, that you would be honored by it. And God, we thank you that for the fact that you guide us to, that you give us your spirit. And it manifests itself in different ways sometimes. But God, you, you give your spirit to your children and that you guide us in truth, Lord. So even as, as your church, we ask that you continue to guide us in truth and help us to uh, know you more, to understand you more, to love you more, and to follow you faithfully. And we pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen.